Welcome once again, everybody, to the Music History Podcast. Chris Sheeman, glad to be with you once again. Today, we are talking punk rock, and there's no greater fear for any rock star than to be labeled a sellout, is there? Many bands have been labeled sellouts, of course, but can an entire genre sell out? Uh, punk rock began in the UK to rebel against the monarchy, and it migrated to the uh, tough streets of New York back in the 70s. And the entire creed of punk rock is anti-authority, anti-sellout. Punk music, it's raw, it's loud, it's in your face, it's, and its lyrics reflect the frustration of that subculture. But as the decades have progressed, punk rock became a little more mainstream and as it became more mainstream, many believe that the entire genre changed, becoming the opposite of what it was originally intended to do. Uh, Kurt Cobain, for example, he wanted to carry that punk rock legacy forward, but he also loved pop music. And that blend might have frustrated some purists. And as the 90s progressed, this is really the generation that I grew up with. Uh, bands like Green Day, NoFX, Pennywise, they tried to carry the punk rock mantle but by doing it in their own way, they made it more commercial than even Cobain could have hoped for. Even today, many Trump supporters claim punk rock as part of their white supremacist movement, uh, completely ignoring the fact that it, the genre started to oppose the kind of centralized power that Trump and his fans would love to bring here to America. So, what's the rightful legacy of punk rock? Did it sell out? Did it become pop and commercialized? What, if anything, did it accomplish? Here to discuss with me is the Situationist International in American Hardcore Punk, 1982 to 2002. Apparently he's retired. He's also the author of uh, popular music, Gender and Postmodernism, Anger is Energy, and a professor at the University of Texas, Mr. Neil Nering. Neil, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, uh... Kind of unpacked a lot there in the intro. Let's go back. Uh, tell me a little bit about punk as it began. Where and why was it started? Well, I noticed that you referred to uh, Kurt Cobain's taste for pop, and and this is something that I was thinking about. Uh, that it's hard for me to accept this because I mean I was twenty years old when punk came along, and and of course it seemed like just utterly revolutionary. And uh, one thing that was hard for me to accept over the years, as I noticed critics pointed out, that really punk was uh, a very nostalgic music, that it was doing a lot of throwback stuff. I mean, Blondie was uh, surf music and girl groups. The Ramones did a surf song on every album. And, um, you know, part of the punk revolution was that, especially in the era of art rock and Emerson, Lake and Palmer and that kind of garbage, that uh, and the prog rock fans aren't going to like that, but but uh, <laughs> they'll be uh, all right. any, we'll, yeah, we'll, anyway. We'll uh, cover po uh, prog rock in another episode. That'll keep yeah, them happy. Yeah, no, that's made a comeback. My students are really into that, and uh, it mystifies me and it mortifies <laughs> me. But but uh, at any rate, uh, I was going to say that part of punk's sort of you know it seemed like at the time like the resuscitation of rock and roll was a throwback to the '60s and and. Uh, so, um, you know, in a sense, it, it was always pretty pop. And, and I mean, I, one reason I could never understand, I mean, 
one of the saddest things in music history is the Ramones are now one of the top grossing bands in terms of merchandising and uh, you know revenues from advertisements and stuff. I mean, Blitzkrieg Bop is in about half the ads on television now. Yes, uh, right. and they're all and they're all dead. And and when they were in their prime, they couldn't get the time of day. People reviled them. And I couldn't understand it because they were really catchy pop music, you know. And, and uh, so the pop, you know, the, the pop element was always there. I mean, there's a genre called power pop that has now gotten other names like Yellow Pills and stuff. But um, power pop was an invention of, of the punk era. And, and uh, so there's always the pop element. And, and in fact, I, I always thought of, of all the great punk bands as, as just playing very catchy songs and and. They restored the three-minute song when there was a time in the mid-70s. I mean, I think of even good albums like David Boy's Station to Station, where there's like six songs on an album. You know, every song is, it has to be ten minutes long or something. And, and uh, so it was part of the economy, but it was the economy of, of pop music that the punk helped restore. So really, that, that element was always there. It, you know, people just weren't, a lot of people weren't ready for the Ramones, and, and uh, they were very poppy, and they were very commercial, and so that was always there in punk. So I, I don't think that somehow punk could be taken pop. I mean, it's a different story with the Sex Pistols, but I, but I won't launch in on them right now. Well, let me ask you this then. Uh, you <laughs> mentioned a couple of things, and a couple of things that are interesting to me. One of the things, my theory is, and, and I have a belief that John Lennon, is punk rock. His attitude, his uh, post-Beatles music, everything about him to me was punk rock. Why did they hate the Beatles so much then? One of the things that was going on in the mid-70s also was what well, was coming to a head. And I, I was one thing I've noticed in the recent past, people around my age, one of the things we wax nostalgic about is this sense in the mid to late 70s that punk had to happen, that we were waiting for this, that it was bound to happen, that something was going to happen, because basically the situation in the mid-70s was that the 70s rock stars were all the rock stars of the 60s, and, and it really was, it was getting pretty farcical. And, and, uh, uh, and in terms of rock and roll history, of course, um, you know, all the great American originals of the 50s were either literally or figuratively dead by 1960. And so rock and roll right up through the late 1970s was all the great groups of the 60s. And, and there had to be a change into the guard, and it's since happened a number of times. But um, punk was just a real moratorium on the, the state of rock and roll in the, in the middle 1970s, which was pretty wretched. Besides art rock, there, you know, the United States was dominated by Southern boogie bands. Uh, I mean, Leonard Skinner's the honorable exception, but, but, right. uh, and now I've got way away from your question, but, <laughs> uh, there is this, there is a sense of inevitability to punk and, and, uh, um, and and the sense that some something had things had to change. I mean, Rod, all the greats of the '60s had persisted too long. I mean, the Rolling Stones, whom I love, but uh, you know their continuing existence is just you know on a level with you know Donald Trump being president. I mean, it's just an atrocity. <laughs> <laughs> we could we could go. Uh, maybe I'll have you back a uh, season two. We'll do an episode. <laughs> so we've got prog rock. I've already got season two working on here. Yeah. Prog rock. We've got the Stones and Donald Trump. Uh, yeah. What the hell happened? Uh, yeah. <laughs> all right. So we're in the seventies now. Let's let's advance things a little bit and, and take it to the eighties now. Uh, what happened between nineteen eighty 
and uh, the Seattle bands in the mid to late 80s? That's a good question, yeah. I was paying attention by the early 80s. I was working on my PhD, and I, I, I'm still paying attention to music. But I think the best answer to that is, is probably to look at Michael Azarad's book, Our Band Could Be Your Life. And, you know, he's got chapters on the replacements and Husker Du and Minuteman. Uh, I'm not sure if Mission of Burma is in there, but uh, um, I'm leaving some great band out of there. You know, there's the uh, bands like Fugazi. But basically, punk went underground. And, and uh, uh, you know, you mentioned my article about the influence of the Situations International. And uh, that starts with, with underground punk. I mean, the, the downside to that was that hardcore punk... I mean, that was underground punk, hardcore punk, pretty much synonymous, I think. Um, hardcore punk was, was, didn't have any place for women, especially when things, when the mosh pit came into vogue. And um, I even knew an academic once who had a book about women in slam dancing that never got published, and it was just a really bitter story. But um, uh, at any rate, uh, the, the, the big, you know, I would say it isn't just a gap between 1980 and Nirvana, and, you know, there is that documentary it's, it's about Sonic Youth, but the title is 1991, The Year Punk Broke. Right. Uh, and it's a reference, actually, to Nirvana, of course, and, and the Nevermind album. But basically, punk went underground, and, and, uh, and they're brilliant hardcore punk bands from the 80s. Uh, and it was very political, um, again, depending on the scene, I suppose. But, uh, like, you know, my interest in the situation is, uh, that pertains to San Francisco and and to the, all the bands uh, in the orbit of the, of the Dead Kennedys and and uh, in fact I just got an email out of the blue recently from Frank Discussion which is a great pseudonym uh, of the <laughs> Feeders and and he was totally into the Situationists and and their albums advertising and stuff in the early 80s but um, uh, punk I mean punk actually was alive and well, and, well, it was totally sexist. I mean, it had the effect of starting to say driving women away. So then another thing that happens in the early 90s, of course, is the advent of Riot Girl. You know, Kathleen and Hanna <laughs> is somebody who I admire greatly, somebody who yeah. I probably wouldn't know of without Kurt Cobain either. Yeah, and, you know, and the thing is, there were brilliant female punk bands in the late 70s and the very beginning of the 80s. That's the same hiatus for women. Well, the hiatus in women punk, I think, has everything to do with the way that hardcore punk and uh, evolved in the 80s but um, you know there are bands like the raincoats and the slits and kleenex and uh, x-ray specs with polystyrene and i mean it was a revolution in women and rock and in, in from about 1977 to 1981 and then that sort of disappeared i mean it's partly that um you know the uh where punk went as far as women were concerned I mean, the Go-Go's, I think the Go-Go's were wonderful, and I saw them like in 1982, and I liked their albums, and, and they had actually been on the L.A. hardcore punk scene. But, you know, that was the first number one punk album in the United States, was the, was the Go-Go's Beauty and the Beat in 1982. And, uh, you know, on the cover of that, they're getting makeovers, or they're taking bubble baths, you know, and... and right. uh, uh, the Bangles, I saw them open for the Ramones in 1981, and they looked like bag ladies. And then when they started showing up, and they started showing up on MTV, and I was like, "Who are these women?" You know, and they were all glammed up and everything. And I think that was kind of a cul-de-sac for women in punk. But the, uh, punk never—I think punk actually evolved and and really. 
Well, I'd say pretty radical ways, because all these bands, like I think of the Minutemen and their, oh, what is the one with the picture of them as hunting trophies? I can't think of the name of that one. But it has that great song, The Price of Paradise. And But the the, the punk bands throughout the 80s, uh, the underground punk bands in the United States were very radical and brilliant musically. I mean, Husker Du, I, I love Husker Du, but, but they were sort of, I always thought Bob Mould seemed to be kind of anti-political. And, and uh, you know, he had these songs hectoring people who talked about anarchy and stuff. And, and But anyway, I think the 80s is actually, uh, you know, like a golden era for punk. But it was going on way under the surface. Let's uh, fast forward a little bit again, uh, my era, the era when I was a teenager going to concerts. Um well, I was a little bit older when I saw Some 41 had Pennywise open for them, and mm. it was the most appalling thing I think I've ever seen. First <laughs> of all, Pennywise should have been the headliner. Pennywise should have been the only damn group there. Uh, that's mm-hmm. worth the price of admission to me, but Some 41 was, was big at the time, and they were quote-unquote punk, too. Uh, <laughs> and it kind of seemed like things went backwards a little bit. Everything that you talked about, about the sexism, I thought we had solved all those things with Kathleen Hanna and all of those wonderful babes in Toyland and and those great Mm -hmm. groups in the 90s. And then you've got some 41, I'm at this concert, and they're bringing girls up to flash everybody. And, you know, what what is the message there exactly? Where where did the message of punk rock go, and have we gotten it back? That's a tough one. Well, I'll tell you, you mentioned babes in Toyland. My really, I, I hate to admit it, my really close attention to music ended on a, a February evening in 1992. I went to a show that featured My Bloody Valentine, was touring behind Loveless, one of the great albums ever made, and Babes in Toyland and Dinosaur Jr. were on oh the bill. It was a great show. And stuff. then I went, went, went home about 2 in the morning, walked in the door. My wife was nine months pregnant. She says, time to go to the hospital. And I turned around and went out again. And I always uh, tell my students, that's pretty much when my really close involvement with music ended. It was a great show. And then, you know, it was a great evening <laughs> altogether at birth of the first child and seeing My Bloody Valentine. And um, the second wave of the 80s was like two-tone and stuff. That was that was an outcome of punk. I watched it, and, and it had to do with the jam doing their mod revival in the late 70s in England, and people started going back to the 60s, and, and ska was the music of the late hard mods, early skinheads in the late 60s. And so two-tone um, you know, came, came out of, directly out of punk. And then in the, what really galled me in the 90s was, because I'd love bands like the English Beat, was, what was the Gwen Stefani group, No Doubt, or yeah, something? Right. I'm, I mean, I think of, uh, I mean, the way I put it is in terms of, like, the, the third wave of ska in the 90s. I thought that was absolutely awful and, and uh, was a real atrocity on the, the originals. I mean, on both the first and second wave of ska. But when I heard Green Day for the first time, uh, like Dookie, I thought, well, these guys are okay. They sound kind of like the Buzzcocks. And, you know, <laughs> it just seemed pretty derivative to me. And, and punk bands that I heard in the 90s, I didn't really warm up to. And What uh, about Bad Religion? Yeah, bad, oh, bad Religion. That's the one with the biology PhD in it. I mean, I have right. to kind of appreciate the fact he's an academic. Now, my, uh, one of my students one time was telling, told me a funny story about, uh, we talk about punk and politics and, and, um, and, you know, I, I like bad religion the best of, and they're okay, and, and I admire the politics. But my student said he was like, he met, uh, I can't think of the guy's name, the leader of bad religion, and and, uh, and and he's talking 
I don't know what, Latin American politics and stuff. And my student said I was really chagrined because I'm, I've like had some albums under my arm and I, I just wanted some autographs. And you know, he's steady, he's getting a political lesson. Um, I, I always think of something Grill Marcus wrote like 40 years ago that, that, uh, uh, Shuwap Duwap is like uh, better than any protest song because the protest song you're in, you're stuck in a box and and so bad religion was okay but um, uh, you know that when you're so overt about your politics I mean the class you know doing songs like Guns of Brixton and talking about shooting it out the police when they're major rock stars I mean that's pretty ridiculous but um, bad religion was okay and you know just uh just kind of heavy-handed politically i think but well neil we're running out of time here uh okay let's put a bow on it i'm going to make the case for today's pop stars having that punk mm. rock attitude and kind of carrying that over mm. uh people like ariana grande you can hate her music till you till you die and probably be right to do it but I will say this, you know, if, if there's an anti-feminist thought that comes to her, she will clap it back immediately mm-hmm. and throw it right back in somebody's face. So I, I do think that attitude has kind of transcended certainly the music because the music is, is just not there the way that we know it or even you know it. Uh, I think by the time that I, that I came on board, it was I had already missed the boat. But uh, certainly the attitude remains, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. And, you know, another thing that that I heard and 80s rock is absolutely wretched. Uh, There's a scene in Boogie Nights when Mark Wahlberg is trying to make a record. And it's hilarious because it has all the musical and lyrical cliches down really well. But um, but one thing, uh, one way in which music changed with punk that I've heard ever since is music was really getting really languid in in the 70s. And again, I blame Art Rock for that. I mean, there are Yes albums I kind of like, but I have to admit these things are not rock and roll. And and uh, uh, But um, music, there, there was a new propulsion to music in general after punk that I think has never gone away. I mean, basically just playing up-tempo. I mean, that, that was another thing. That was where punk was so striking, or, or where the Ramones were so striking. They're just playing up-tempo when music had gotten pretty soporific. Uh, and uh, like I said, I mean, it was, it was either the art rock and newling on acoustic guitars, or it was boogie. So I, I've heard the change in music ever since, that, that punk made music more sprightly, <laughs> made it more lively. It, re- it kind of restored the life to, to rock and roll, I think. Well, Neil, on that note, we'll put a bow on this one. Thanks a lot for okay. uh, giving us some of your time here today. And, uh, Neil, anything to you want to promote, get out there before we let you go? Nah, I've got, I'm working on an article about the origin of Sympathy for the Devil and the Rolling Stones playing around with Satanism in the 60s, but i got a ways to go with that yet. <laughs> All right, Neil Nearing, thanks a lot for giving us some of your time. Okay, thanks for having me. Folks, as always, we want to mention uh, this wraps up Season 1, so feel free to spread the word through social media. On Twitter, it's Music History Podcast, all one word, and uh, at Chris Scheman on Facebook and on Instagram as well. So thanks for taking a listen to this and all of the podcasts this year. Season 2, just around the corner, so stay tuned for that.